Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Acts chapter 8, we have the description of Paul, who was known as Saul at this time, going forward and finding people who were considered to be Christians and arresting them and trying to put them in prison. This is described in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, referring to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And so the people in Jerusalem did go out and look for those who were believers in the Lord Jesus. After Stephen was executed, they did find this to be somewhat inspirational to at least go out and arrest people and lock them up. Now, we don't have any indication that anyone was actually executed. We just know that people were arrested. We don't know if there were trials. We don't know what the results of those trials may have been. All we know is that people were just being arrested. They were being persecuted. And Saul was apparently the person who was at the forefront of these efforts. Now, why would Saul be so involved? What would motivate him? Why would he be so interested in going out and trying to arrest believers and try to put them in prison? What would possibly motivate him? Well, we certainly don't know because there's nothing recorded that tells us precisely what really motivated him. But one thing that I did notice when going through Acts chapter 7 was that he was standing to the side while other people were stoning Stephen. While he was standing to the side and he was looking after people's clothing to ensure that they could retrieve their clothes when they were finished stoning Stephen, Saul would have observed this. He would have seen this take place, and he would have seen that people were definitely interested in doing this to Christians, or they were interested in harming them or interested in trying to stop them from telling others about what they really believed. As a result, I personally believe that what would have motivated Saul to begin with would have been the desire to be accepted. For him to be off on the side and not really go along with the crowd at first tells me that he might not have been that much involved with the crowds of people. He might not have been very popular. He may not have been very well known. He may not have been very well accepted for whatever reasons. And so because of this, he could see an opportunity. He could see an opportunity to start being accepted a little bit by the people whom he wanted to accept him. And so this could simply have been motivated out of his desire to be a part of the crowd, a part of the group, a participant in the movement that was going to set Jerusalem free from these odd people who were believing different things than they were. It could have been as simple as that. We don't know that he was motivated to do this out of his desire to do something for God. We don't have any indication of that whatsoever. We can tell that those who murdered Stephen apparently were not motivated out of their desire to be obedient to God by committing murder, for one thing. From what we can tell, they were actually motivated by their anger, by their fear at being exposed to what Stephen was saying. 
So what really motivated Paul, we don't know. We don't really know what motivated him when he was known as Saul, but this is something that he certainly did. Now, as a result of these efforts, what took place was, was that the church began to disperse. It went out into the surrounding communities. It did not just stay there in Jerusalem or within the regional proximity of Jerusalem, but the people did go out into the other communities, and they ended up sharing their faith with other people who were not really part of Jerusalem or a part of the events that unfolded before. For example, in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, we have the description of Philip going out into Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lamed were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. And so Philip was going forward and telling people about the Lord Jesus, and people were being miraculously healed through him as the Lord was giving testimony to the truth of what Philip was saying to them. This was taking place, and so many people were beginning to believe in what Philip was telling them, believing in the Lord Jesus as being the Messiah. Continuing on in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, and they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And then in verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So Philip came to town. He was certainly the new show in town. He had the new power in comparison with Simon. And he was there performing great miracles. People were believing, and in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. People were being baptized in the name of Christ Jesus. But what did that really mean? That meant that there were people who were officially converting to Judaism. To be baptized in water was simply the means by which a Gentile converted to Judaism or a Jew would recommit their lives to the Mosaic law. That's what that meant. I explained this previously in a previous broadcast. And for additional information regarding the history and the purpose of baptism, I would like to encourage you to get the series that I did on baptism where I explain this subject in complete detail. But here I'd just like to summarize that what this would have meant to the people is that these people would be recommitting their lives, or committing their lives, to the Mosaic Law. That's what this would mean. Now, this is very important to realize that at this point, these people are not officially saved. They have not been saved. They have not been raised from the dead. They have not been given the free gift of eternal life. These are simply people who have been baptized. This is very similar to those who were baptized with the baptism of John, because in effect, that's what this is. It is a baptism of repentance, repentance from your old life to turn to a new life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. This is how the people would have understood what was taking place here. And so when you continue on in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, you then see the opportunity for them to actually be saved. 
but not through Philip. This was through Peter and John. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very important to see. It's a very important distinction that these people received the Holy Spirit when they were told about the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit in accordance with what information they were given, which means that at this point they would actually be saved. You see, salvation is not about being baptized and then turning away from your sins through repentance and then being baptized in water. That's not what salvation is. Salvation has to do with solving a very important problem between man and God that was described in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. That problem was not that we needed to be baptized. That was not the problem. The problem was was that through Adam and Eve, everyone who was born from Adam and Eve were born into this world spiritually dead, without the presence of the living God indwelling within them. That's the problem that needs to be solved. When God gave the law to Adam and Eve that in the day that they ate from the wrong tree, they would surely die, they certainly did die in that very day. That death was the absence of life. It was the absence of the life that was breathed within them that made them into a living being. And that life that was breathed within them was the very life of God. It was the Holy Spirit that was breathed into Adam and Eve and they became spiritually alive. But when they ate from that tree, they lost that life. The life of God departed from within them and God changed everything to include the fact that they would physically die And they did physically die. Adam died about 930 years after this event, but he did eventually die. That was another death. The penalty described by the law for their disobedience was experienced by them at the very day that they actually ate from the tree. And that describes the problem between us and God. The problem was was that we were dead. We do have a sinful nature and a propensity to sin. And if we were to ever receive that Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam ever again... We would need the sin issue to be resolved, otherwise the next time we sinned, we would lose that life again in accordance with the law of sin and death. And so that's the problem. The problem is that everyone is born into this world spiritually dead. The solution, the solution that provides for salvation is that our God has offered to us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life that had been lost back in Adam and Eve. But once we receive it, there is now no sin left unforgiven that would cause that life to depart from within us. And so when we do receive the Holy Spirit, it will never leave. And so the life that indwells within us, that resurrects us from among the dead, is a life that will never be lost. And so we have, by definition, an eternal life or an everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so when Philip went to Samaria, he told them about the need to repent from their sins. And that's important, no doubt about it whatsoever. However, he then had them baptized with the baptism of John as a part of a conversion process so that they would commit themselves to a life of repentance and to belief in Christ Jesus as the Messiah. That's certainly true. However, that's not salvation. It wasn't until Peter and John went down to go speak with the people in Samaria about the restoration of the Holy Spirit that they would have an opportunity to be saved. And through the restoration of the Spirit, they were certainly saved. 
Continuing on into Acts chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourself, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That was his response, Just pray for me, fine, just pray for me, and then I'll be on my way. So they received the Holy Spirit. The people received the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just because the apostles laid their hands on them. It was because they believed in the restoration of the Holy Spirit. This is just a description that that is what happened. That was the event that took place, that the apostles did lay their hands on the people. But it certainly is not mandatory. We have other examples in the scriptures that shows that it is not mandatory, that it certainly is not a requirement for somebody to receive the Holy Spirit. But that is the objective, and that was an objective that Philip apparently did not understand very well, or he rejected, who knows. The important thing to see, however, is that even though Philip did not really believe the fullness of the gospel as Peter and John apparently understood, apparently there were some differences between the apostles in terms of what they really believed and in terms of what they would really tell other people. Even in the midst of those differences, the Lord Jesus still used Philip. He still used him. Even though there were many things he did not understand, the Lord Jesus still found ways of effectively using Philip to draw people to him, to draw people to the Lord Jesus. And so because of that, we can be thankful that regardless of what Philip understood, the Lord still found a way to use him. So likewise today, in the church that we have at our disposal now, while there is a great deal of confusion and a great deal of uncertainty with regards to many subjects in the scriptures and things that are not even in the scriptures, there's a lot of debate, a lot of confusion. Even in the midst of that, the Lord Jesus still finds ways to use people to communicate his message. And he can perform miracles within and through people just fine, even in the lack of understanding that they may have. A person does not need to have a complete understanding of the gospel. A person does not need to have a mature relationship with the Lord Jesus for the Lord Jesus to use them and perform miracles such as these in order to assert the validity of the truth of the message that the Lord Jesus once conveyed to these individuals through his disciples, through his followers. And so because this is how the Lord was able to work back then, we should not be surprised and in fact should be very thankful to see that the Lord is still able to work through his people in similar ways today. But what happened with Philip? Did he ever really believe what John and Peter proclaimed and what they revealed? I honestly don't think so. And the reason why is because as you continue to read in Acts chapter 8, you see that Philip continues with the same message that he communicated while he was in Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 25, it says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he went, and we can continue to read and see what happened 
what happened was that he came across an Ethiopian eunuch, a person who was reading through a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he was reading a passage in those scriptures that he did not understand, but those scripture passages referred to the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. This is described in Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 33, where it says, Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. In verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? And so Philip used this as an opportunity to tell him about the Lord Jesus, about the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. And through the testimony of Philip, the eunuch believed. But then what happened? What happened after he believed? Well, then shortly after he believed, he discovered that there was some water on the side of the road. This is described in verse 36, beginning in Acts chapter 8, verse 36. It says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. He went away rejoicing. So what happened? Well, Philip told him the message that he believed. Philip told him the gospel that he understood. He was able to communicate enough to this eunuch to let the eunuch know that Jesus was certainly the Messiah. The eunuch did believe that he was the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But then he's baptized in water, which officially means that he's going to convert to Judaism through the baptism that was described by John, and so he could recommit his life to the Mosaic Law. That's effectively what that meant in the culture at this time. And so then what happens? Well, there's nothing more that Philip is going to share with him, and so the Lord snatches him away, takes him away, as a testimony to the eunuch that what he believed up to this point was certainly true. It was a miraculous sign, it was a miraculous event that the Lord executed in order to validate the truth that was communicated through Philip that the eunuch was now believing. So Philip was not able to disciple the eunuch, which is just as well as far as I can tell, because Philip did not have much of an understanding of the gospel. He apparently did not have a very clear understanding of the gospel. He did communicate what he did know, But from this point forward, the eunuch is going to have to pursue a knowledge and a relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus. And hopefully at some point, the Lord Jesus would make it clear to him that that was only the beginning. That was a beginning understanding, but that certainly was not salvation. Even though the eunuch believed that Jesus was the Son of God, he still would need to be resurrected from the dead by the restoration of the Holy Spirit. And how the Lord would make that real in his life, I certainly do not know. We don't have it recorded here, and that's okay. We don't need to know. But this is important to consider, and that is that in the midst of the evangelism, in the midst of the evangelism, a person can believe in the Lord Jesus, at least to the extent of what they understand. And that certainly is a wonderful beginning in terms of a relationship that a person can have with others. However, a clear understanding of the gospel still escaped most of the people there in Jerusalem. 
at least with the example of Philip. Peter and John apparently had a reasonably good grasp of that, but even beyond that, what would that really mean in terms of walking in and living out our daily lives in light of that truth? That's something that was still to come. As we approach chapter 9, for example, we approach the conversion of Saul, Saul, who became the great apostle Paul, who then communicated the message of the gospel completely and fully, not only the salvation by the restoration of life, this life that would remain eternally because of the complete forgiveness of sins, but the Lord used the Apostle Paul in order to communicate the reality of how we would now live in our daily life in light of what he had actually done for us, in light of what the Lord Jesus had actually done for us. Most important, of course, is that through the forgiveness of sins, we were set free from a lifestyle under the Mosaic Law. This was something that was communicated through the Apostle Paul, not through any of the other apostles or through any of the other disciples. Except perhaps, of course, Stephen, who Paul was there. He was there when Stephen was murdered because of his faith. And I personally believe that Stephen did have a reasonable understanding with regards to being set free from the law. I do believe that. But when Paul came on the scene and he started presenting his understanding of the gospel and the implications of the gospel, when he finally began integrating within the Christian community, he did run across a great deal of opposition from many people within the church, many of the apostles. It was a very important conflict that they all had, but it was a conflict nonetheless, and it was a conflict that we should definitely pay attention to. For example, later on, when Paul goes to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, the entire church of Jerusalem, all the apostles, all of the elders assemble together for the purpose of discussing the question as to whether or not a Gentile would have to be circumcised and as to whether or not a Gentile would have to live their lives in accordance with or in obedience to the law of Moses. It was Acts chapter 15 when they had this discussion, and this debate was inspired because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so given this example, I think it's very important to acknowledge, it's very important to acknowledge that a person does not need to have a complete understanding of the gospel or a complete understanding of the implications of the gospel for the Lord Jesus to work in their lives. In fact, I find in most cases when a person first comes to know the Lord and are born again of the Spirit, they understand very little, if anything at all. They may certainly come to Him for what they do understand, but in general they really don't know what they've really gotten themselves into. In general, people don't begin to grasp that for many years and for many transitions as a person goes from one transition to the other, growing in their understanding of the grace of God and growing in their understanding of what the Lord their God is doing in their life right now. There are many important transitions that we all go through, and so to assume that someone who has a poor understanding of the gospel or has a poor understanding of the differences between law and grace, to assume that they are maybe not a believer or to assume that the Lord cannot use them is a false assumption. It's a very poor assumption, and it is an unfortunate manifestation of pride that many people start to reveal or start to manifest in their hearts when they do come in contact with the truth and the reality of what the Lord Jesus has done for them and the implications of what he has done for them and how he has set them free and how he has enabled them to walk in an entirely new and different way of life. When this happens, sometimes people tend to develop an incredible amount of pride, and it's very unusual for them to notice that amongst themselves. However, there are many other people who can notice that very easily, who can figure that out very easily, and can identify it very well. 
And unfortunately, in many cases, as people start to mature in their faith, they don't see this, they don't understand this, and it does take some time for them to get in touch with the reality of how they are really relating to other people. I consider this to be sort of the spiritual teenage stage. When a person is starting to mature, they're not quite an adult yet in the scriptures. They're getting pretty close. They may have a very good understanding of all the truths relevant to the differences between law and grace and the differences between faith and works and maybe some of the dynamics of spiritual warfare as it relates to law and grace. I certainly do see a lot of people who begin to understand this, but what happens is that they then tend to condemn other people who don't quite understand the truth of the Lord Jesus. They don't quite understand what these people understand, and so they tend to have a bit of a condemning attitude or a superior attitude towards these other people, which generally is quite unloving, to say the least. And so when this happens, it's very difficult for a person to break through this. But once they do, once they leave this, what I call the teenage stage of spiritual maturity, once they leave this, they can generally be very loving, very kind, very patient, very responsible people with the truths that the Lord has revealed to them, responsible in the sense that they will know when, where, and why, and how to communicate these truths in a very constructive way so they don't come across in a very arrogant or proud manner in such a way that other people have a difficult time receiving the message because they're so preoccupied with your prideful attitude. And so please understand that while a person may not have a complete understanding of many things, the Lord our God can use them in various ways, can perform many miracles, visible, physical miracles within and through them. And don't question those miracles necessarily as to whether they are of God just because of the doctrine that the individual believes. They may very well believe things that are not true, but the Lord does not need them to believe everything that is true in order to work within and through them. The Lord can use anyone. He used Philip, who had a poor understanding of the gospel. He used him very well. Peter and John came behind him and added to other people's faith as they needed to be built up in their faith, and the Lord used that in order to grow other people to know him more. A little bit at a time is better than nothing at all, and the Lord does use a little bit at a time in order to draw people to himself at a pace that they can handle and they can absorb in terms of growing in a relationship with him. And so trust in his work in other people's lives and just simply watch and observe and ask him to tell you what he is doing in the midst of the circumstances and even in the midst of the confusion that you do see. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937 or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.